all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean but that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love." The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this is the word of our God, and it will stand forever. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, we do pray that you would grant to us wisdom and give us eyes to see your spirit at work. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and open our minds and allow us to trust and believe in your good news, because if you don't, oh Lord, if you don't give us your spirit, we won't see it and we won't believe it. I pray that you would enable that to be so, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I try to be a good son-in-law, and I have about 17 years of experience of that so far, and Mary's probably cringing at this moment, wondering, what's he about to say? You know, I realized after 17 years of marriage, I realized it sooner than that, Uh, that marriage is a cross-cultural event. Every marriage is cross-cultural. You know, it really doesn't matter what color your skin is. Every marriage is cross-cultural because every family brings a different culture to the table, different habits and different traditions and different activities that they engage in. Every family is unique. And one of the unique elements of Mary's family and their culture is that they are a family of gift-givers. They love to give gifts, and they're good at doing it. Every year, every year, the request comes for a Christmas wish list from my mother-in-law, and it comes just about the same time that Home Depot is putting out all of its Christmas merchandise for you to take a look at, you know, about mid-August or so. She wants to be prepared. She wants to have lead time to know Where is she going to go to get these gifts, and how can she be best prepared to give them? 
she is a very good giver of gifts. I mean, over the course of years, she's given me nice shirts. She's given me business suits that every pastor should wear. She's given to me a bicycle at one point, a really nice one. She's given to me Bible commentaries and Texas Ranger tickets. She's a really good gift giver. But each year, the request comes, and my answer is the same every year. I don't know. I don't know what I want for Christmas. And I think that's frustrating to her, puzzling to her at least. And that's where I struggle to be a good son-in-law. I don't know what I want for Christmas. I always tell her, and it's difficult for her. Even when a generous and eager gift giver is asking for my requests, I don't know what I want, and I don't know what I need. The Apostle Paul is writing to a young church in Ephesus here. It's a young church. It's, it's less than 10 years old, probably five or six years old even, younger than our church here. And they are a people who are holding in their hands gifts that they don't even know that they have. Gifts that they didn't know that they should want, and they had no idea that they ought to need them as a church. And Paul says to them, even though I'm far away from you now in prison, Ephesian Christians know this. God is building your church. He has preempted the Christmas list altogether. And grace upon grace upon grace, God is building your church by giving you gifts. Now, he alluded to it already back in chapter 2, verse 8, which is a well-known verse among Christians. He told them there's something that they already knew well. He said, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not by your own doing. It is what? The gift of God. And now Paul takes that idea of giving and expands upon it even more. And he shows them how God draws together his church for his transformative purposes in the world by means of ordinary people like you and me. To his friends, Paul writes of calling and of Christology and of equipping to persuade them that no matter how much they might long for a healthy church, God longs for it even more. And so he gave gifts. He gave gifts to unite one family. Paul writes, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Through the gift of a call, God is knitting us together in the church, he says to them in Ephesus. And this call is a gift We know it because of what we know about the nature of man. Paul, again, had written to them already in Ephesians 2. You were dead in the sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. He called us to life. But it's not just a calling to life. It's a calling to unity, Paul says. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he gives the theological reasons for that. He says there's one body and one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul, do you hear him? He's driving us to the core truths of what we believe. 
that really, in the end, matter. The things that hold us together, as it were, as a church. And yet, even on those things, Christians differ, don't they? They do. And so, Paul realizes that he has to take one more step. Just one more one, he says. And one God and Father of all. In other words, we're a family. We're a family together. Now, in pointing to these ones, he's showing unity, but he's not disregarding the many's of diversity in the body. We heard some of that from 1 Corinthians 13 just moments ago in the Lectio reading. There in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing to another church body that he planted. And there, having just pointed out in chapter 12 that preceded it, the great variety of gifting that God gives to the people in his church. Some have more wisdom. Some have more knowledge. Some of them have greater faith to believe that God is actually doing something. Some of them have a depth of discernment that others don't have. Some of them are really good at teaching. Some of them are really good at helping. Some of them are really good at administrating. And so on the list goes. Paul, having just explained this list of diverse gifts within the body of the church, makes the warning clear. Don't break unity because of your diversity, he says. The greater gift is love. The greater gift is love. Did you hear it even here in Ephesians 4? In verse 2, he says, Bear with one another in love. In verse 15, he says, Speak the truth in love. In verse 16, he says, The body builds itself up in love. You know, Christians choose their churches based on all kinds of criteria. You know, we all have our own sorts of things that are important to us the things that we look for when we go to look for a church that eventually bring us there to settle. And Christians filter down their criteria through the ones that Paul has mentioned here, and it's all good and appropriate. You know, the one Lord, the one faith, the one baptism. We filter through those things according to what we understand them to mean until we find a like-minded group, a denomination, or a local church eventually where we seem to fit according to those ones. But even when we gather together in one room, in one theater together for a worship service, we still have our differences, don't we? We still have things that distinguish us from one another. You know, you hear it just in the conversations, in the aisles, in the lobby, and at home group gatherings. You hear the conversations, and they're all well and good. They're important and healthy conversations to have. One person will say, I prefer this style of music. And another will say, oh, but I prefer that one. One will say, I love that we serve wine at the communion table at our church. And another will say, well, I kind of think it's an obstacle to people that might be uh, offended by it. Others say, I think that we should do youth ministry in a certain sort of way. And someone else will say, but no, 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 that's not, that didn't work. I think we should do it this way. Someone will say, I think Vacation Bible School is the greatest outreach effort that any church can ever do in their neighborhood. And another will say, VBS is just kind of a drain on energy and a waste of time. We all have our differences of opinion and our preferences. We see things in different ways. There will always be matters of disagreement among even us here. But Paul says, before you are different, 
you are first the same. You are first the same. You share an identity. As one family in the gospel, it is your obligation to treat each other as brother and sister. And therefore, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and patience and love. It's your calling to treat each other with grace. He gave gifts to unite one family. But a family lives somewhere, and their father lives with them, of course, and so he gave gifts as well to establish one dwelling. Verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, and this is where it gets fun, because Paul begins to toss the Old Testament at his friends in Ephesus. Specifically, he pulls out Psalm 68, and he throws it back to his friends in Ephesus, knowing that surely among them were some who were Jews from the synagogue where he went first to preach, and they would have known the Old Testament Psalter, the, the song book of the Israelites, these songs that they sang. They would have known this psalm, some of them. And Paul draws out Psalm 68, and with one phrase, he gives them a world of things to think about regarding the gift of the Incarnation. The gift of the Incarnation. Now, this psalm was thought to commemorate, to have been written to commemorate King David's celebratory procession back into Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, that golden box that by now was ancient in David's hands. And that box contained in it the the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, and other relics uh, from the, the family history of Israel, important matters. And that golden box was the sacramental symbol of the very presence of God himself with his people. It always had been that. And now, for several decades, it had been neglected during King Saul's reign. It had been left in the house of a man named Abinadab, For years and years and years, the ark had been left there. And now David has gone back to reclaim it. And he's bringing the ark, the very presence of God, up, ascending up to Jerusalem to bring the presence of God back into his city. And this psalm gives us a sense of what's going on with it. Take a look at Psalm 68. I want to read just four verses, starting at verse 15. This is what the Israelites would sing. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. Verse 15. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, O Lord, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. Okay, it's a poem. All right, so what you heard was personification. The, The poet is speaking to the mountains as though they could respond. O mountain, why do you look with hatred upon the mount that God has chosen for his abode. He's speaking to a mountain. There's a mountain that's jealous because another mountain is soon to be the home of God himself. 
God, the powerful God who leads an army of thousands upon thousands upon thousands, who will dwell upon this mount of dirt. Now the Israelites could see with the ark arriving in, in Jerusalem that God was now, by means of his King David, ascending the mount, Mount Zion, to live with his people. Israel, of course, had a heritage of captivity and now they're free because God has freed them from that. And the triumphant king is receiving gifts of tribute from those who are there to celebrate. And now Paul takes this picture of the Old Testament and he, with an eye on the flow of redemptive history and the coming of the kingdom of God, he explodes the whole thing. See what he does. Because Old Testament hints at redemption often get fulfilled in hyperbolic ways, exaggerated ways, in the New Testament. To borrow an illustration from a professor from Westminster Seminary, David Pallison, who explains it this way. He says, think of it like this. What if, in 1905, God had promised your great-grandparents that someday He would give their descendants a Model T Ford a Morse code communication device, and a biplane. And then a hundred years later, God fulfilled that promise, giving to you, their descendants, a Chevy Corvette ZR1, a satellite-linked smartphone, and a Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor fighter jet. I mean, imagine that. Would God have fulfilled his promise to your great-grandparents? Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, but he gave them a promise in words that they could understand. If he had told them these things, they would have had no idea and no appreciation for it. But he gave them a promise in words that they could understand. And then a hundred years later, he fulfilled that promise beyond their wildest imagination. They could not have conceived of what he would have given to their descendants. And so, Paul explains this psalm just a bit in verse 9. Did you see it? In saying, he ascended, what does it mean but, now Paul's going to interpret, what does it mean but that he had also descended to the earth? And he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, the Old Testament Israelites would never have imagined this. There's no way that they could have conceived of this at the time of David celebrating entering into Jerusalem. They couldn't have. That God would become a man, that the maker of the universe would take on flesh, that he would come and live and walk on the earth, and that through his life and his death and his resurrection, he would ascend, but not up some dirt hill. Rather, he would ascend up above the heavens to fill all in all. Now, the Israelites knew this Old Testament promise, this well-worn statement of God throughout the Old Testament, saying, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. But Paul now writes from prison with a kingdom of God perspective on all of this. He writes from prison to tell the church, God's dwelling is not a mount of dirt. Instead, it's you. It's you, he says to them. The God of heaven lives in you. The maker of the universe resides in your midst. The king of creation dwells with you. 
New St. Peter's, here. And there he's at work doing something. He's doing something. Notice in Psalm 68, did you see it? That there, one difference is that God there was the one receiving gifts. He was getting gifts of tribute from people around him. Now Paul has taken some liberty, hasn't he? Some theological liberty, and he's turned that around. And what he said to the Ephesians is, and God gave gifts to men. He's turned it around. God is giving gifts to men in order to accomplish one goal. Now in the Presbyterian world, we tend to take from Ephesians only the, the systematic theology of Ephesians. We, we get much of our doctrine of the church from this letter, and that's perfectly right and good. That's exactly what we should do. But it's also a very practical theological letter. And if we don't do the practical, then we totally miss Paul's intent in writing the letter to his friends in the first place. If we don't move toward the one goal of growing up together into Christ the head, then this letter really means nothing to us. It does us no good at all. And so God gave the gift of equipping. He gave the gift of equipping in verse 11. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, the one goal is simply this, to build up the body of Christ, to attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, Paul lists a a variety of offices there in that verse, and those, for some, can become a little bit confusing. What does he mean by the apostles? Does he mean that apostle is an office that's going to go forward beyond the first century of the church? What about prophets? Does he mean that there are prophets in the New Testament as there were in the Old? Evangelists, are those just the ones that the church formally sends out somehow, or is that everybody? Shepherds and teachers, what does that mean? What does all that mean? That can cause a little bit of confusion. I think it's cleared up already somewhat by verse 7 that we already saw. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, Jesus is the one who gifts us and he does it differently according to his own wisdom and as he determines it. But I think the essence of what Paul is writing here is that God gave leaders to tend to the flock. To use the metaphor, shepherd, which Paul gives us there, Shepherding is a concept that the church talks about frequently. Bible-believing churches do, and we should. And yet it's one that can be a little bit elusive to us. What does it mean to shepherd? What what do we do with that? I think it's really a pretty simple thing. It's not easy, but it's simple. And shepherding is this. It is simply putting someone in the best possible place where they can grow in grace. Grace. That's what a shepherd does. I mean, even, again, to use the metaphor, that's what a shepherd of literal animal sheep does. He takes them to the greenest pasture where they can most effectively feed themselves to grow. That's what a shepherd in the church is to do as well. And here, I think the thrust of what Paul is writing about shepherding is this. That happens by equipping the saints for the work of ministry, for the work of serving in the church. It happens, shepherding does, by putting you in the best possible place where you can use your gifts to serve in the church. 
verse 16, Paul alludes to that metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12, again, that we heard somewhat already. The, verse 16, he says, The whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. You know, that metaphor from 1 Corinthians 12, the body has many parts. All these different parts. Some of you are feet and some of you are hands. Some of you are ears and some of you are eyes. Some of you are knees and some of you are elbows. All these different parts and yet one body. That means for us at least a couple of things. The first one is this. Don't despise the gifts of other people. God gave them those gifts. When I was in third grade, I remember well, it's fitting that it's October, because in October of my third grade year in school here in Dallas, our teacher divided us up into groups of four or five teams. And we were to work on a group project together. It was a crafty sort of thing. And she gave us cardboard and and construction paper and scissors and glue and markers. And, And our task as a group, as a team, was to build out of those things a ghost, a Halloween ghost. And I gathered with my group in the corner at a desk, and we began to to pick up the construction paper and the scissors and the cardboard. And my perfectionistic tendencies took over, as they still do. You can ask Mary. She'll tell you it happens often enough, more than it should. And so as my friends in my group began to cut pieces and to fit things together, I would see what they were doing, and I would say, oh, you know what, let me take that and redo that because it could be a different shape. And wait, that piece of paper should be that color, and so I'm going to just change that if you don't mind. We're going to put that there. And so by the end of the project, we had a really nice-looking ghost. But my friend Jeff Blue taught me a question, taught me a lesson through a simple question he asked. He said, he was upset. He said, Colin, why did you have to do all of it? Now, my first response in my gut was to say, but Jeff, look at our ghost. It's good. You're going to get an A. But he taught me an important lesson at that point. He was right. Others in the group, they all had abilities to contribute. They had something to give to the project, and I didn't let them do it. I had despised their gifts. Uh, just a few months ago, I, I, was, was, uh, I came across a spiritual gifts survey that another church had on their website, and I, I took it for myself. I had taken the same one before, among others, and maybe you've done that yourself. And, and whatever you may think of pro or con spiritual gifts surveys, I think that they can be very helpful in helping us to begin to think about what God has done with us and what we might have to contribute. And I, you know, I realized as I took that, it, it, was, it was confirming of what I already knew to be true of myself. And yet, among the top six or seven gifts that showed up on my survey were not administration and evangelism. Ouch. And that one kind of hurts, especially evangelism. I mean, if I'm going to be a pastor, shouldn't I be an evangelist? Is that just kind of what you expect? Now, some of you can stand in the checkout line at Target, and in the 10 minutes it takes you to do that, the person behind you, you've already been talking to them, and now they're ready to go to church with you because you've been, it just kind of happens for you, and you can't help it. It doesn't work that way for me. It's just not the natural gift that God has given me in that particular sort of context. Don't get me wrong. I love to tell people about Jesus when the, when the circumstances are right, but it just doesn't happen for me that way. I don't have the gift of administration so well. My desk is a disaster. It always is. But 
I have other gifts. You know, does the absence of those things disqualify me? God has given me. I mean, my gifts tend to fall into the areas of, of teaching and shepherding, of serving and helping and giving and hospitality. Those sorts of things I do without even thinking about it. I need other people who will do well what I don't naturally do well. And you need the same. Don't despise the gifts of others. The second thing is this. Don't despise your own gifts. Don't despise your own gifts. God doesn't give you gifts to serve yourself. He gives you gifts to serve your brothers and your sisters in the church and even more to serve the glory of Christ. What does he say? Each part must work properly to make the body grow. And we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Recently, we had a vase full of Gerber daisies in our kitchen on the counter. Some of them were yellow and some of them were raspberry colored. And they were beautiful, Gerber daisies, for the first day. Raspberry and yellow all together. The second day we walked in and there was only raspberry visible. All the yellow Gerber daisies had drooped down over the edges of the vase. For some reason, their stems were weak, and you couldn't even see the yellow anymore. They were there, but you couldn't see it. I don't know why they did that, but they they did. The yellow ones drooped. You know, if the stem isn't strong, then the glory of the head is obscured. And if the stem is strong, then nobody notices the stem All they see is the glory of the head on the top. That's what they see. You know, there may be moments where you wonder what little I have to offer to the service of the church just doesn't really count. You know, I just don't, don't have that much to offer. But you have to see that pulling in the same direction stem and roots and leaves, all pulling in the same direction for the sake of the glory of the head have great effect. Some of you have great knowledge. Some of you have wisdom. Some of you have, have inclinations to serve in mercy. You can't help it but to be merciful to people. Some of you have deep faith. You just know that God is working and so you can wait out a long dry season because you know that God is going to do something eventually. Others of you long to pray and you and you want to know how can you pray for your brothers and sisters around you. Others of you love to give what you have back to the service of the church. Others of you are really great at teaching children. Some of you are really good at singing. God has given you gifts to contribute to the body for its building up. And we need you. We need you to give them. The building of the church for the transformation of the world is an imposing task. So God gave gifts. Christmas is coming. What's on your wish list? Christ has come. What has He already given to you? He's given you a call. He's given you a call to unite with your family in love. He's given you Himself. He's given you Himself in the flesh. He came to dwell and by His Spirit He remains with you. And He's given you the gift of equipping. He's given you something, abilities and 
and talents to contribute for the good of your brothers and your sisters in love. He gave gifts to build up his church. In love, he gave gifts to build up this church. So in love, give those gifts back for the good of us all. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.